The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ward. I got it. Thank you, my man. All right, what a great morning. Adriana is back in the house. A new mama. What a blessing. Uh, Miss Edith is back in the house. She told me, many may not know, but she has been struggling with um, nerve pain. Uh, in her back, running down to her legs. If, in, if you've ever had that, you understand. <laughs> it, it's, it's tough. It's some of the worst pain. But um, finally had a procedure after several weeks, and she just told me she hadn't had to take anything in the last three days, and that's a miracle. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, God. Uh, I'll celebrate with Wayne Denny. We know that uh, he just got his doctorate, but what you don't know is he has been awarded the best um, dissertation in his class. And uh, yeah. Wow. I know too many people way smarter than me. Uh, and, and it's a good thing. Uh, so many things to be thankful for. Um, and I love the, uh, just the leadership of the pastor search team. And uh, oh, and Miss Lisa, she started some new meds and is feeling. She said it feels like it's beginning to work. So uh, that's, a, that's another big answer to prayer. And we're going to keep on praying. So, so many other things that we could uh, celebrate this morning. But, uh, but I celebrate that we can come before God and He will meet us. Uh, that's really the message of our sermon this morning. He is a God that meets His people, He's here. He's not a dead Savior. He is a living Savior. And so let's go to Him right now and ask God to prepare our hearts and to get us ready and to have great anticipation for Him to speak to us in the next few minutes through His Word. Take a minute or so and do just that. Oh, God, we thank you that you are a present God. By your Spirit, you dwell within us. You've told us that your Word is powerful and that it never returns void, but it always accomplishes its will. And so, God, I pray that our hearts and our minds would not work against but would work with your spirit this morning speaking through your word. I pray for deep transformation. I pray for those in this room this morning that need to trust God for a miracle, for those that have lost hope, <laughs> for those that have been so traumatized by 
evil in this world and maybe evil in the church that they just can't trust you. But, oh, God, I pray that you would break through. Lord, not to restore necessarily trust in your church, but trust in you, Lord Jesus. You're the Savior. You are the one who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's in you and you alone that we have life. Oh, God, I pray for the young people in this room. Lord, that you would just open their hearts to the beauty of Jesus that they might see that they're not alone in their fears, in their insecurities, in their anxiousness, but they can look to you, and you are a near and present Savior. I pray for the business man or woman in this room, Lord, that is fearing loss of job, is feeling like they're in a dead-end job. (laughs) Lord, I just pray that you would meet them and show them that there is hope in you. That, Lord Jesus, you give life where there is death. You bring hope where there's hopelessness. And so, God, I pray that you would lift our chins and lift our eyes to you, that we might see Jesus and we might see him in his glory for us. We need you. I need you. (laughs) Be with us now. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We're getting to the end of John, and I'm so glad that I was assigned these two verses because because John is summarizing. He's really telling us what he's been about, why he's been writing for 20 chapters. You might remember that in John chapter 1 and verse 1, he begins by saying, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God. And the Word what? Was God. He, he starts there, and his whole next 20 chapters is spent proving to us that Jesus is God, so that doubting Thomas might walk into that room and might see Jesus and touch his side and touch his hands and say, what? My Lord and my what? God. And so now John says, all right, Downey Thomas got it. We finally got the declaration, Jesus is God, but now I want you, anyone and everyone that ever reads these words, I want you to get one single message, and that is Jesus is God, and he is God for you. And he was raised from the dead, but Jesus was raised from the dead. There were several that were raised from the dead. Lazarus, but we don't call on the name of Lazarus. We don't call on the name of the widow's son that was raised up. We don't, we call on the name of Jesus. Why? Because he's God. And he is a present God. And John says, I want you not just to know things about him. I want you to know the living God. I want you to walk with him. I want you to invite him into every context, every conversation, every challenge that you're facing. I want you never to feel alone. I want you to know the risen Christ because that's why he came. I want you to believe in the depths of your soul that he is for you. He is with you, and he will never leave you. Jeff and Beth Mose, some of our best friends in seminary, long ago, back in about 1987 to 91, I think, Rachel and I were uh, in seminary at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, 
And Jeff and Beth were there the same year. We were in the same class, and they lived five or six doors down. They had two young girls. We had two young girls, and so we did life together for three years. Uh, none of us had money. I look back. I think we were living on $1,500 a month, uh, way under the poverty level. So we were sharing food. We, you know, uh, we were jealous when somebody had enough money to actually go out to dinner. Uh, we, we were in it together, and we struggled. And yet, those were some of the best years of our lives. We grew very close. We saw them about a year after graduation, but then for 31 years, we never saw each other. And yet, about a year ago, Jeff called me. He pastors a very large church in Sioux City, Iowa, and, um, and someone had donated a scholarship for a pastor to go with them, accompany them to Israel, and he offered it to me. And I said, yes, as you know, and Rachel and I got to go to Israel, and, and there were so many life-changing, significant things that happened on that trip, and yet one of the best things was that we renewed relationship with our old friends. And it was almost like we lost no time. I don't know if you've ever encountered that. I was just really taken back. I thought there might be some awkwardness. No, I mean, we were right there. We were deep into each other's lives. We were finding ways to sneak off from the group and have lunch together or dinner together. We, we walked with each other and ran all the sites. We shared stories. We shared our pain, we laughed, we cried, and we connected. Why? Because we, we were known, and we were accepted, and we were loved. We didn't have to pretend. We threw everything out there, and we realized that even in the midst of the messiness, we were alike. There's something deep deeply encouraging about me being known and accepted. And what we need to understand is that there's a reason for that. It's because we were, have been created to be known and accepted. We have been created to, to be in relationship with one that is home, that smells like home, that looks like home, that tastes like home. And yet, it's not a friend on this earth. It's Jesus. See, what, what that relationship with Jeff and Beth gives us is a taste of what Jesus offers and what Jesus is inviting us into. Oh, what a travesty if we just settled for a relationship with Jeff and Beth Mose. When the God of the universe stands before us, the risen Savior, and says, I want to know you. I want to accept you. I want to love you. I want you to know how much I know you and have accepted you and love you. I want you to live in the essence of who you are with the confidence that I love you. And I'm available to you. And my arms are open to you. And I never turn my ear away. The main idea of this sermon is simple. And yet profound. John in his gospel has recorded the works of Jesus that we might have life in his name. Friends, life and hope have a name and his name is Jesus. You, you, are, you are so hungry for meaning and significance. You're so hungry 
to find, to find the one that is going to complete you, and Jesus is that one. He's the one that can give you overflowing joy. When, when Paul looks at the Galatian believers and, and, and says, what happened to all your joy? That might be one of the most significant questions in all the Bible. Because what Paul is saying is, you are apart from Christ. There is, here's what Jesus gives us. He gives us joy despite our circumstances. He gives us joy in the face of circumstances that should be giving us anything but joy. He is the essence of joy. And he is the freedom to live this life not weighed down by the struggles that we face and the trauma that we experience and the death that we smell that's all around us. So the question is, do you this morning, I'm speaking to Christians, you might not be a Christian here this morning, you think, oh, here's the preacher goes, singling me out. No, I'm talking mostly to Christians. I'm talking to you too, but I'm speaking mostly to Christians, and here's the question, do you believe Jesus to be your Messiah? Not, do you accept Jesus? Do you believe him to be your Messiah? Is that where you are right now in life? Is that the season you're in where you are believing with everything you are that you need a deliverer and you have one? Despite if he's changing your circumstances, but he is the joy and the peace and the healing in the midst of the pain. He's the one that gets in the fire with you so that he can bring you out. You see, Jesus is a present hope. I'm in a very weighty season of my life. Rachel and I both are. I feel a, a significant amount of responsibility to play a significant role to raise $3.5 million for little downtown church to buy a building and have a home. While I'm starting a ministry where I'm trying to convince eight presbyteries. You say, what in the world is a presbytery? It's just a geographical region and all the EPC churches in that, that region. So that's about, I don't know, 200, 250 churches. Convincing them that they need to be impassioned about church planning and buy in to this church planning network so that we can plant 150 to 200 churches over the next 15 years. We are facing finding a new lead pastor. I've been working on that for the last 15 years. And I failed. But Jesus, friends, is a present hope. I was in Wichita, Kansas, Friday, actually Thursday, Friday, and Saturday this week, presenting to the Great Plains Presbytery, this church planning entity that we're starting and i landed in kansas and got off the plane was walking through is anybody here from wichita kansas i picked on the methodist uh on easter and i really regretted that because uh anyway so i'm i'm, I'm glad nobody's from wichita uh but i got off the plane i was like my, my first thought was and it was, i laughed at myself which i do a lot my first thought was i'm not in kansas anymore but actually i was in kansas uh and I thought, okay, I'm, I get it. I'm going to have to do a, some work to exegete this context. You know, if any of y'all are in sales, you got to know who you're talking to. you got to speak the language that you, of the person that you're speaking to. And so I am presenting to uh, those that live in Kansas and, and um, Great Plains states. 
And um, as I spent an hour Friday afternoon with their, their governing council, and I presented the, um, the idea and the concept, and it went pretty well, but I walked out going, mm, I need to do better tomorrow morning because they gave me 30 minutes in front of the whole assembly. And Friday night, I, I, you know, I was just working. I was like, God, you got to let me know. And finally, I'm like, I got to go to bed. And God hadn't given me the word. And so I woke up the next morning, and I'm still praying. I'm like, all right, God, I got about two hours. Clock is ticking. And here it came. And I, I grabbed the little, you know, notepad they give you in the Fairfield Inn. I don't know why I just didn't go to my computer, but, uh, you know, that's not my go-to because I'm a, I'm a boomer. Um, and so... I write it all out, and I'm excited. I'm like, thank you, God. And I get there, and the, before I, I make my presentation for 30 minutes, we worship. And in the midst of that worship, God says, no, I want you to change this up, and here's, what I want you, here's how I want you to start it. And I did it. And I was so excited. And then I went to the airport, and I, kind of on this high. You know, it went so well. And then so I pulled out my sermon, and I started reading it in the uh, Wichita airport, and, and this, it just, I've, I've done this so many times where I've written, I'm 80, 90% have my sermon written, but then Saturday afternoon I read it and I go, oh no, this is not, this, no, I can't preach this. This is not, and this is how I gauge, this is not the message I want to hear. That's how I gauge, you know, my sermons. So at least I get something out of it if you don't. Uh, that's kind of how I approach it. <laughs> and so, so I said, okay. I mean, everything in me was like, okay, no, just you're tired. You know, you don't have that much time. And I said, no. All right, Lord. On the plane, in the airport in Atlanta, on the, you know, I'm, I'm writing this sermon. And finally, you know, it's coming. And I'm writing. Something interesting happened um, Chardet said we secured a, a pastor search team, and I know the person who's the liaison, uh, his name is Ed Norton, and he was on that flight from Atlanta, to, <laughs> and we got to talk in the airport, and we had a significant conversation. I was like, okay, God, I hear you. You're at work. You're at work. Of all the people on the planet, this is the guy, it was also Lauren Muller and some others but, uh, uh, that I know, but it's like, I hear you, God. You see, we can live confidently, and we need to walk by faith in the midst of whatever we're facing, because we have a living God who, is, who cares about the details, who cares about the small things and the big things. You say, how do you know that? Because I've read the Gospel of John. And, and here's what John does. He lists seven miracles so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. That we might not live life with it on our shoulders, but on the shoulders of Jesus. He gives us this confidence, the confidence, the reason that I can go to Jesus in the midst of these situations, the reason you can go to Jesus in the midst of these situations is because Jesus walked into a wedding feast and turned 230 gallons of water into the best wine anybody at the feast had ever had. You can trust Jesus, so says John, because we, we have the story of Jesus healing the official son when he wasn't even in the same town of the son. You can believe Jesus because he healed a man who 
sat by a pool for year after year after year. 38 years he was uh, lame in his legs. He couldn't walk. And so many other years he was by that pool and he couldn't get there. He couldn't get healing until Jesus said, rise, get up, take your mat and go home. You can go to a Jesus who fed 5,000 men and probably at least that many women and children with five barley loaves of bread and two small fish. That's the Jesus that, that is walking with you. That's the Jesus that is facing whatever you're facing right now. You've got a Jesus who appeared to his disciples, not swimming by the boat, hey guys, walking on the water, the Sea of Galilee. That's your Jesus. You've got a Jesus who healed the man born blind. And I love this. The, 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 the Jews said, hey, you know, is this really? They, they, they told the man, well, this man must be a sinner. And I love these words. The man who received sight from Jesus said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know that I was blind, but now I see. That's the Jesus he knew. And friends, that's the Jesus, the same Jesus that's walking with you. And we have a Jesus, so says John. He records it, the seventh miracle, who stood before the tomb of Lazarus and with the power of three words, Lazarus, come out. The dead man got up and came out. And then we have a Jesus who himself was beat, was nailed to a cross, whose side was pierced with a spear. He was prepared, taken down, prepared for burial, went into the tomb, but on the third day, he rose up, and nobody had to stand outside and say, Jesus, come out. Jesus got up. Because of his own power, because of his own might, because of who he is. He is God. Do you see how, 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 how John is doing everything he can possibly do to convince us this is the Jesus that has offered you this morning. This is the Jesus that is walking with you in your life. You are not facing your challenges alone. You have this God walking with you that you can look to who loves to do the impossible for you who loves when you call upon his name, who loves when you walk by faith when everybody else thinks you're foolish. He says, you can trust me. I will be your friend, though nobody else might be. And I'm enough. Dear friends, when I'm believing that, I'm invincible, and so are you. The only reason that's not true is because much of the time I forget it. And I'd rather sit there and worry. I'd rather lose sleep and be anxious and try to figure it out as opposed to just getting on my knees. And every single time, it's, it's embarrassing almost. Where Jesus, that soft voice comes to me, Richard. Why are you carrying it? Why are you carrying it? What are you doing? Don't you remember me? Come to me. You're weary. You're heavy laden. Oh, you come to me. And the second thing I think we need to see is that it's foolish not to believe Jesus as your Messiah. That's really what John, that's the case he's building. He's built this apologetic. 
And if you think about it like that, that it's really foolish not to believe Jesus as your personal living Messiah, once you really see his argument, I think you'll get it. The way that Jesus, that, excuse me, John presents the seven miracles, um, he is recording it purposefully so that it would, it, it's almost like, okay, Christianity would be the easiest, you know, uh, religion in the world to disprove because it makes the most bodacious claims. It, you know, if you talk smack, you better be, you better be able to, to stand behind it, Right? Well, Jesus says and does some profound, bodacious things. And it would be easy to disprove. There's literally no reason for Christianity to have taken off and changed the Roman Empire in the 300s. Everything was fighting against it. The Jews said it is heretical to believe that, that God would become man. Why would the Gentiles embrace a Jesus that was only going to get them killed. Because Caesar, it was, it was, it, it was against the law. It, you had to bow to Caesar. You had to declare Caesar to be your God. So to say that Jesus was God meant your death sentence. Why, who in the world would do that? And so he records this. Um, think about him turning the water into wine. I mean, you know, John was written 30, 40, 50 years after these events. And so, it would be easy to go back. There were certainly people that were at that wedding feast that you could go back to and say, hey, did that really happen? And if it didn't happen, there, somebody would give an explanation, no, that really wasn't how it went down. I mean, it was close to that. We ran out of wine, and it almost got there, but, but you know, Jesus called another, you know, sent a runner to another city, and they brought some wine, and, you know, we, we partied. Nobody did that. Why? Because they didn't have an explanation because it happened. The official got home. His servants met him and said, your son lives. And the official said, he didn't say, hallelujah. He said, what time did it happen? <laughs> and they gave him the hour. And he, and he goes, that is the exact hour that Jesus told me he would raise my son, he would heal my son. He believed, and the text says, and his household believed. They were witnesses. This was a miracle. They didn't have antibiotics. <laughs> they didn't have the technology we do. It was a miracle. The man at the pool of Bethesda, he had been lame for 38 years. What, was he just faking it? Was he just, oh, gotcha. I really can walk. There's no other explanation. I mean, how many people knew this man and knew he was lame for that many years, and yet he was healed when there was, not even today, not even modern medicine today can heal a man who is lame. There's no other explanation. It would have been easy, the easiest thing in the world to discredit, and everybody was trying to discredit it. Jesus feeding the 5,000, it was more like 10 to 15,000. How do you hide a stash of food like that and kind of keep slipping it in? There are 15,000 people that could say, no, nah, it didn't really happen like that. And yet they couldn't. Why? Because they had no idea how it was happening. 
Why would the disciples fabricate Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee? Why would they, why, why would they fabricate these miracles and then die for it? That, make, that is senseless. Why would they do it if it didn't happen? The healing of the man born blind, no other explanation. Somebody surely could, could why well, no, I knew him when he was younger and you know he could see just fine. That didn't happen. Why? Because it happened. And then Lazarus, my goodness. John is like, if you don't believe it now, I'm gonna tell you about a, a man who died, and the whole town knew he was dead. They prepared his body, put him in the tomb, and left him there. And we saw Jesus stand before that tomb, told the guards to get out of the way, said, Lazarus, come out, and that man came out. Could there be a lie any more bold than that that would be easy to disprove, and yet no one could do it? Why? Because it happened, and the people saw it happen. And Lazarus hung out with them. <laughs> and then you have Jesus and his resurrection. He appeared to 500 people, many of whom would still be alive when John records this. Many of them saw him die, and it wasn't just, you know, oh, a little strike on the head, ah, maybe he was dead, maybe one. No, he was tortured publicly out in the street. Hundreds, thousands saw him bleeding. They saw him. They didn't take him to a back room and nail him to a cross. They nailed that man to a cross in front of everybody. And then they put him up, and they did it publicly. That's how they executed people, because they wanted everybody to see, you better, you better get in line, because if you don't, this is your fate. It was public. And then his side was pierced with a spear. And three days later, he shocked his disciples. Mary comes running back. I've seen Jesus. <laughs> He's alive. Peter and John. He's alive. Thomas, the holdout. My Lord and my God. <laughs> it's true. Why? Because... It happened. And friends, why not just believe the teachings of Jesus? Because friends, you need more than that. I don't need a philosophy right now. I don't need some how to think positively when you're under a lot of stress advice right now. I need a deliverer. I need a savior. I need someone that I can trust, or I'm just going to give it all up and say, hey, I'm not your guy. Do you see how that works? And so the third thing, the final thing is we got to ask the question, are we experiencing life, the life of Jesus right now? Are you, is the life of Jesus running through your veins? Do you have life in his name? I watched a video of a woman 
and I think I've showed this before, I asked my staff, and a couple of them said, yeah, I think you did, and uh, one or two said, I don't think you did, so anyway, I'm just going to describe it, but I've watched a video, watched it again yesterday, of a woman that, in Ukraine, who was in her apartment, and the whole side of her apartment was blown out. Obviously, a bomb had come through, and that bomb went through the wall right over her piano and blew out the other wall. So here she is in her apartment, and she walks up to her piano, and she, she starts dusting off all this debris off of her piano. She lifts the cover. She gets to the keys and brushes everything, glass and wood and everything off, and she begins to play this music, and it's beautiful. And the contrast is so striking. During the destruction, hope is rising up. And that is the, 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 the human spirit, isn't it? The human spirit is resilient, but why is it resilient? I want to propose to you the Christian answer. The Christian answer is because we were created to hope. We were created to walk by faith, not by sight. We were created to know and be able to withstand the, the waves and, and the turbulence and the trauma of living in this world, but knowing and hoping that there is a Savior where we can live a life playing a piano in the midst of the destruction around us. When everyone else has no hope and everyone else is falling apart, we can be playing the piano. Because we have a hope that is real. But here's the thing. We're made for hope, but oftentimes our hope is very misguided. I don't know if you saw. I've been fascinated by this. Dwight, Dwight Shrew of The Office has written a book called Soul Book. And it says, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. And he's making his rounds on the late night talk shows. Could be morning talk shows too. I'm not... I'm, can't watch those. Um, and what, what he, he's basically throwing out there is his uh, Baha'i faith, which believes in the divine nature of the missions of Abraham and Moses and Buddha and Jesus and Muhammad. And it, it sounds so attractive that basically all, you know, all of the religious leaders had a a part to play, and, um, and yes, they were all had a divine element to it, but it was really a progression. I mean, we were really progressing forward, and, and now we just, you know, we just need to kind of compile all the religions, and we need to take the essence of all the religions and believe that. And whereas that may sound good, that, is, that stands in direct opposition to what Christianity proposes. And that's what John wants us to hear this morning. No, I want you to believe that the Jesus that took on flesh was here for 33 years, who lived, died, and rose again, is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That that's the hope. And both of those can't be true. There's either life in his name well, there's really no life, but we can take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and try to cope in life and hope it all works out. 
If you're sitting in your bombed out apartment or the bombed out apartment of your life, which we all experience to one degree or another, you don't need a philosophy. You need a savior. You need God to show up. You need a God-sized faith that says, though the mountains fall into the sea, though the waves crash upon me, Though there's no reason in the world to have hope and joy and to experience life, I have it because I have Jesus. People, theologians have debated, why, why didn't Jesus heal all the paralytics or all those that were at the pool of Bethesda? Why didn't Jesus feed everybody all the time? Why didn't Jesus heal every blind man? Why didn't Jesus, you know, why didn't he just take care of everything? And on one hand, I got to admit, and, you know, theologians have got to admit, I have no idea in that sense. And if you have a God that you have totally figured out, then I can assure you that is not God. Because God is over us. I mean, that's the whole, that's kind of the idea, is He's supreme, He's greater. But I think there is something that theologians seem to be, to agree on, and it's this. That Jesus, during his life, and, and the reason he was giving these miracles is that we might get a taste of what's to come. You know those previews of a movie. If it's really good, you want to go watch the movie. Well, Jesus is a really good preview. You think about those miracles. That's what's to come. You see, he's coming back. He rose from the dead. He ascended on high, and he is coming back. And he's going to make everything new. Every bad thing will be made good. Every ugly thing will be made beautiful. There will be no scarcity. There will only be the feast. There will be no loneliness. There will only be deep abiding love and relationship. Why? Because Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And Jesus offers himself to you. Jesus is that hope. I love it. I look at the, the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine. That's his first miracle recorded in the book of John. Why, did, why is that the first miracle? Now, I'll be honest with you. Now, for a wine lover, you're like, okay, I get it, maybe. But seriously, why would that be the first miracle? I think it's to, to, to just shout from the rooftops, I care about the little stuff. I hear people all the time, I feel bad taking this to God. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You better take it to God because he is inviting you to take it to God. And I think, too, he's showing us something beautiful, and that is in the feast, it's not just the rich that have the best. But we're all at the table, eating and drinking and delighting in the Savior. This is why Jesus, or why John wrote this gospel. And so I ask you this morning, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And are you experiencing life in his name? Lord Jesus, thank you. Oh, I thank you this morning that you are a present Savior that you are the Messiah, you are the Deliverer, you are the hope of the world. Oh God, would you help us? Some of us stumbled in here this morning saying, I believe, but help my unbelief. Oh God, I pray that our faith has been emboldened. 
Lord, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him in all that he is and all that he's done and all that he's promised. And help us to hang on his words and hang on his miracles and hang on him. But, oh, have a greater hope and a deeper faith in the reality that he's hanging on to us. Lord Jesus, would you do a mighty work in us this morning? If there's someone here that walked in not believing this, never believing it before, Lord, and you're working in their hearts, I pray right now that you would give them the faith to see. Give them the eyes to see and the ears to hear the glorious hope of the gospel of Jesus. And Father, I pray for the deepest skeptic, the one who hadn't found the freedom in a long time just to fall into the loving arms of Jesus and to walk by faith. Oh God, help them to fall on their knees before you. You are so good. Ah, what a good, good Father. What a good, good Savior. We give our lives to you. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's receive the benediction. Dear friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Go in peace, friends.